0: This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to The Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, The Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer.
1: The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Lounge. We have a special episode today. Lisa and I are answering all your questions. You submitted questions by Twitter, email, anonymously through Emon, and we are ready to be asked anything and answer all of your questions.
0: All right. So, uh, Danielle, we'll get the ball rolling with friend of the podcast, Harpreet Saini, uh, who asked us the hard hitting question of uh, what fictional lawyers have most influenced your advocacy style? And apparently you get bonus points if you don't answer L from Legally Blonde, but I leave the ball in your court on that one. Uh, Well
1: I do love the Legally Blonde movies and I watched them recently with my daughter um, which was really fun but uh, I would say that and I don't know if it's my advocacy style but there was it did influence the way I thought about a legal career Um, and I would say Ally McBeal Hmm. which is a bit of a controversial choice I think but Um, And I don't really have full recall of the series, to be honest with you. But I think the thing that stuck with me was that she was just like a hot mess of a person. (laughs) And I think that, you know, there had been these kind of characterizations of professional women on television um, through the 80s and 90s when I grew up. Um, that were a bit robotic, you know. That that women who were career minded were single minded and completely focused and completely together and polished. And Ellie McBeal was just, you know, a disaster. She was clumsy. She didn't have her personal life together. And there was something accessible about that. <laughs> For me, who, um, you know, uh, when I decided to go to law school was, you know, all over the place, um, uh, messy and boy crazy and, um, and just a mess. And so, you know, that's, that's the show that sticks out for me. Do you have an answer to Harpreet's question,
0: Lisa? (sighs) I don't really have a good I don't have a good answer. I am I'm like such a complete loser when it comes to loving crime and law shows and movies. I think I've consumed all of them. Um so I think that I think there's no way they don't have an impact on me because I'll be the I was a member being on a flight once in law school reading a criminal law, like first-year criminal law, while watching some like true crime bullshit show on like the West Jet in-flight entertainment, like someone who just can't stop getting, like take, I can see like put it straight into my veins, um, but I don't know, like I watched, I watched all of those legal shows growing up, and I always just loved, How much control the lawyers seem to have of the courtroom like it was really they got to be the masters of their own domain and i always thought it was like sexy and fun and it turns out it's not nearly as sexy but it is pretty fun sometimes (laughs) Um, but i always just kind of wanted to be that person that got to come in and you know make your big speech and have your moment there's way less good like background music in real life but i still always like live for that moment where you have the really good closing submission, and you can kind of hear the epic soundtrack in the background. This is my dream that I'll never fulfill. So that's not really an answer to his question, but that's too bad because that's the only answer I have. I do think that we should get entrance music. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> you
1: know, like if we ever get back into a courtroom, I don't know if there's an advisory group that's listening, but if, if we could just add that to a practice direction that, that counsel should have the song of their choice when they walk into the courtroom, I think that would be
0: tremendously helpful. I am hugely in favor. I'm always listening to music as I walk into the courtroom. And usually recently I've like kept the headphones in until the judge actually comes in. So I'm like, my pump up jam is going until the last second.
1: Oh my God. You're like an Olympic swimmer.
0: Yeah. I just think I, I, am in my little zone and the registrar is waving to me and I'm like, sorry, I've got my, I'm listening to the (laughs) Hamilton soundtrack. I can't talk to you right now. Um, so I'm, I'm all about the, the ramp up music. That's very glamorous. That's
1: very glamorous. Okay. (laughs) We've got, we've got a, a question from Cassandra um a couple of questions but let me hit you with this one how do you lisa keep up with new jurisprudence Uh,
0: i mean i don't no i do i try i at least i try um so i try to read all supreme court of canada judgments that come out within like a month of them being released. Ideally I'd read them the same day but I think it would be a lie if I told you that I read everything as it came out. I also about once every two to four weeks will go on the Court of Appeal website and just sort of skim through every criminal decision that's come out. I know some people and I, I know that like Mike Lacey, former president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, uh, was always so a big advocate of you know reading all the Court of Appeal decisions the day they come out or at least the same week. I've always aspired to that, but I, I generally fail. But I do try to skim through them and get a sense of any major developments. I also love people that send me summaries of case law. That's really helpful. So I skim the ORs. Uh, you know, there's the Supreme Court publication that Eugene Meehan's firm in Ottawa sends out that'll sort of summarize Supreme Court decisions. I read the Law Times and and sort of other legal publications that try to tell us about important jurisprudential developments but honestly recently I just uh, and I guess this is going to be a shout out to Chris Suratton but I just read Chris Suratton's Twitter now in lieu of doing any legal reading I just read his Twitter and I'm 100% up to speed uh, so I find the Twitter's like way more helpful than I would have ever thought it would be for just being like a new 276 case came out and then I have to go and read the damn thing but it yeah. just It's so helpful to have someone be like, go do this. And then I do.
1: How about you? Yeah, it's been tremendously helpful. I was not anticipating Twitter to be really um, a resource in that way, but it has. And, uh, and that's been really cool. Um, I agree. I think you do, you do have to just kind of log on and um, plow through those cases uh, at at some regular interval, but I have um, Matt Gorlay in my office who, (laughs) who's <laughs> just encyclopedic and and it has been a real crutch through my my practice because I can any issue that ever arises in any case, I can just call him up and say what's what's the case on this and he knows not only does he know what the law is but he knows the name of the case and and who wrote the majority um, and he's just a very special lawyer and and I've been really privileged to have him uh practicing alongside me. Uh, my uh, nearly my entire career and um and i would really commend that sort of relationship if you can find it (laughs) you know just find a genius
0: okay so i guess we can ask one more the cassandra gave us and i'll ask you this danielle um Cassandra asks, you know, mobility about mobility in your first years of practice. Just do you think that moving around between different law firms or cities in your first few years is a good idea? Is it a bad idea? What are your thoughts on this?
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I, I I didn't move around at all. So my experience was um, to uh, move from articling on Bay Street to uh, practicing with uh, Marie Hennen, and, and I've been there, um, been with Marie ever since. Um, and so I didn't move at all. It, in my prior life, before I was called to the bar, I um, had a very bad habit of starting part-time jobs and quitting them. Um, I was extremely irresponsible and flighty, and, could, and, and no one could depend on me. Um, I would call in sick when I wasn't sick. I was really a very bad bad employee and I moved around a lot. So I'm in general, I'm in favor of moving around. (laughs) I just haven't done it in, in my legal career. You know, I, in my capacity as someone who looks at CVs um, and has uh, a great deal of input on hiring decisions at the firm, I would say that a lot of moving around in the first few years of practice can look like a bit of a red flag. I don't think that would ever cause me to not interview someone, but it would be something that I would ask about. And, you know, often there's a very good explanation, you know, related to family or a change in, uh, focus or, or, um, areas of interest that, you know, explain the, the change. Um, but I think, I think the thing that would cause me to be a bit concerned if there wasn't an explanation is whether the person um, has a a conflicting personality or, you know, or maybe someone who um, has uh, difficulty um, adapting to their environment. And I think as litigators, you're always called upon to be highly adaptable and to be able to change course and, uh, and, and move uh, nimbly, um, with flexibility and and our firm also just by way of culture requires that like an ability to kind of, um, go with the flow. So, you know, I that's kind of a negative answer, but, uh, yeah, I, I do. I do think that they're, yeah. you, you see what I'm saying, Lisa?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I have a slightly different take that is probably informed by uh, having moved around a decent amount so far in my career. But I, I mean, I get what you're saying. I think in an ideal world, like I think your best case scenario is put down roots somewhere and find a good place to grow and it'll, it'll go well. Like, I think that that is like your best case scenario. But the thing that I've learned, I guess, directly is that you also don't want to be afraid to make the moves you need to make to end up in a place that makes sense for you. Because the reality is most, I mean, a lot of people coming out of law school have literally no idea what they're doing. And, you know, in my case, I mean, I was lucky enough to clerk, which gave me a lot of doors opened for me, which was great. But my first law job was just a law job that I never should have done. Like I worked on Bay street for a year doing civil litigation And some like quasi crim stuff, but I, I just, I hated it. Right. Like I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to do crim, but I was so scared shitless. I wouldn't be able to afford to like go to the doctor and get a prescription or something or pay my student loans back that I made a bad decision for me. I'm great for some people. And I am so glad that I didn't heed the advice I was given at the time of like, well, if you leave before three years, everyone's going to think that you flamed out and you're a disaster. Uh, and I was really glad, although at the time terrified, that yeah. I left literally after one year and, and moved over to crim where I wanted to be. Um, and once I got into the criminal world, the first crim job I got, again, it was it was my first, it was a step in the right direction. It was my foot in the door. Um, but it was doing exclusively appellate work, and I think what I've learned over time is that you know I like appeal work; it's fine, uh, but I'm much more suited to trial practice. So you know, I kind of tried some different things on to see how they worked, and, and eventually ended up in an environment that was much more me and much more suited to what kind of work I wanted to do. So I don't. I think you need to strike the balance between being able to grow and build and not seem like you are that flighty person that it sounds like you and I both were in our youth. Um, <laughs> Cause I have, I was like, that is also my life story. I quit so many waitressing jobs. Cause I was like, that's enough. Not today. I'm yeah. going drinking in the park. You can't make me. Um, but, so I think you want to be careful not to sort of come across that way, but also not be afraid to make changes if you have to, to, to end up at a place that makes sense for you. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's really a benefit to bouncing around unless you need to, but if you need to, for good reasons, as long as you can explain those reasons later, I think it's okay. Um, And and like you said, I mean, it's a perception that it's like, it's like a rebuttable presumption. You're concerned when you see all the movement, but if someone has a good explanation of why they are where they are and that they're good at what they do and you can call their references and they, you know, had positive experiences at those places, despite moving around. I mean, it's not a problem. I just... And I've learned, I've learned so much by having worked with such different lawyers, like the, the yeah, firms yeah. that I've been at have such different experiences that I think I actually, I've benefited a lot from it, but now, you know, I do think that it would have been great to end up, you know, where I am now from day one, but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. So that's sort of my, I'm now justifying all of my choices to you. No, um,
1: I, I don't I judge me.
0: you <laughs> that's just, you're hired <laughs> um no i can't change jobs again danielle um but uh i say ironically um yeah. but okay Let's do another question. What do you want to ask me? I'll ask you a question. Oh, I'll ask you a lady question. Okay. What advice do you have for women in particular entering the criminal defense bar? This is a great question from Sarah Little, who also has a great Twitter um, great Twitter source of case law by the yeah, by. Great. Um, what particular challenges have you faced as a woman in criminal law? I'd say like the,
1: the biggest gendered challenges were, um, uh, I, I faced in my younger years of practice. And so they, they relate to, um, gender, um, discrimination and bias that is intersectional with age. So, you know, I think there were, um, moments in my career where, uh, I had to deal with pretty explicit sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Um, as, as I got older, um, that became less and less of a problem. Um, and, you know, there, there was, um, I think also just bias from counsel and the judiciary in those early years that related to, to, um, my gender for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it, uh, I always struggle with trying to answer this question because I don't want to discourage. I want to, I want to hit the right balance between not discouraging women from entering this profession and this practice area, but also being honest and candid and truthful about what was an unacceptable um, set of experiences early on in my career And so, um, and to that, I say that it was overcomable, (laughs) you know, um, it, it, I, it shouldn't have happened. I shouldn't have had to deal with it. Um, but it was, uh, overcomable and it was worth it. So, um, you know, that, that's my, my answer to that one. And, you know, I, I would say that as your experience, uh, deepens and your reputation, um, uh, as you become more well known, um, that you you have to deal with less of that. Um, where I would say it persists, honestly, Lisa is, um, at this stage in my career is on the, on the business development side. Um, And there, there is, um, you know, I I do sometimes see from colleagues um, kind of jealousy around uh, the business development side from my male colleagues, um, that I think is is gendered, Um, and I also sometimes feel as though I don't get the benefit of a referral network that a male lawyer would get. Um, So I don't, I don't feel the gender bias that I did in the courtroom any longer, um, or with my colleagues dealing on a, on, on cases. But I think that on the business side, it's, it remains an issue. And, um, and I don't know that that's one that's going to go away with age and reputation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, everything you said, I agree with, I mean, I've had similar experiences. I, I do think the real, the one piece of good news for any women listening, especially those coming up is that there are a lot of just like awesome, badass female defense lawyers out Mm. there these days. And I think there, there's more and more over time. Um, So I, I have sort of, and I've talked to a lot of female defense lawyer friends about this, which is, you know, some of the things you talk about, some of the persistent sexism and and some opportunities suddenly like, don't seem to be available sometimes for women in this profession. I, I do think that we are starting to build and not starting, we're sort of standing on the shoulders of others who have done this hard work, but that we are able to build our own networks of women defense lawyers now. Um, and there are a lot of good ones. And I do a lot, like I refer a lot of work to women and I'm always very grateful when other defense lawyers who are women refer me work and female lawyers on Bay Street. And I think that, you know, uh, you know, if you don't want to invite me into your old boys club, okay, well, fuck you, uh, we'll build our own. Uh, it was the attitude I'm trying to take now. Because yeah. I have been, I mean, honestly, the things that have made me the most furious and I'm not going to name names because, uh, I love you guys, even though I hate this, Um, but I, you know, I have male colleagues, some more senior uh, around our vintage and more senior who still do like a men only sort of travel CBD event that makes me furious every year because I know women who are my senior, who have known these people for years and years who never scored an invite because it was like boys weekend. And the fact that that is a professional event, like just never sat well with me and made me really, really angry. Um, and those things happen all the time and, and still drive me up the wall. And I don't like the idea of like, oh, we'll make our separate lady event. But at a certain point, if you're not going to invite me to sit at that table, then I'll make my, my own and that's cool. And I'll invite all the great female lawyers coming up to join at some point too. So
1: yeah, I think it's such a good point. And I just think like for all the men who are listening to this, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to, Um, say that you're, you're a feminist, and that you're, you're encouraging of, of women leading in this profession. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you really should look critically at, at the words that you speak on this, Uh, by looking at the last 10 cases you referred out Mm -hmm. and if, if you referred out those cases to dudes in your network and not the awesome female counsel that you saw in court that you've had a chance to watch at the Supreme court on a webcast or that, you know, personally is actually your friend. Um, Then I think you know you got to take a hard look at that and um, and and really think about whether you are doing everything you can um, to back up what you say about supporting uh, women in this profession because you know the the attrition rate is real, Mm -hmm. and there are fewer and fewer of us doing this um, as you. Uh, kind of work up the the ladder in terms of your year, year of call. So lots of us start, <laughs> but um, as we kind of get more and more senior, there are fewer of us around and, um, and that has a lot to do with how tough this friggin' business is, the business side, you know, cause uh, we can handle the litigation. Believe me. Uh-huh. Um we don't need you for that part <laughs> but, but it's it's the business side that um it can be devastating to uh your colleagues and so you know that's just my
0: little uh psa today yeah i i think that is a good psa and i hope everyone listening takes it really really seriously Crown Prosecutor Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, Second Edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the Criminal Code brought upon by Bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennin, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit imond.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Imond is offering 10% off. Just visit Emond.ca slash LLP SO2 and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. Okay, maybe an easier question. Uh, Danielle, mm. when you were first starting out, you were probably offered advice from senior lawyers about how to keep, you know, keep it adversarial in the courtroom and then be friendly outside of the court. Uh, did you take that advice? Is that how you run your practice? Can you take your extreme frustration with a crown in the courtroom and go outside and have a nice personal chit chat with them?
1: Yeah. I, yes. The answer is yes. Uh, that, that has not been a problem for me uh, generally, uh, in my career. Um, uh, but for some, generally (laughs) I would say it has, it has been a bit of a journey on some, (laughs) some cases, uh, in relation to some crowns. And, um, you know, I, there've been moments where there have been five drafts of a letter, um, before the final one goes out, um, where I really spend some time kind of checking myself, uh, in terms of my, um, analysis of, of the conduct of, of the crown. Um, but I, I would say that for the most part, it's, it's not been a problem. I've been manage, able to manage those, those kind of boundaries and, and compartmentalize uh, appropriately. But, you know, I think that where, where I've kind of fallen down on that is, is where um, my idealism gets in the way. I think if, if the crown, in, in my view, has failed in a fundamental duty, um, and and here I'm talking about real fundamental, like you know, bordering on a willful non-disclosure, um, something like that. Uh, you know, where they where they've failed in their constitutional obligations. I just, I find that I can't overcome that because uh, to me it's so fundamental, and and um, you know, my clients' interests are are so core to me. And, um, and I really honest to God believe in, you know, the Boucher crown. And um, if someone doesn't kind of meet that standard for me, um, by a long shot, I, I can't have a beer with that guy, you know, he's not going to be my bud. Um, But having said that most of us are on the same page, you know, and, and, and we
0: can all get along. Have you gotten along with crowns? Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty, like, I mean, I, I think I'm friendly. Um, no, I, I I don't find it particularly difficult most of the time to have that separation. Um, the one thing that I've realized irks me more and more, especially as I've gotten more confident, is is. Crowns who want to denigrate my client to me, like the occasional, you know, we all joke around about work sometimes. But when someone is really making like shitty, denigrating comments about my my client to me in sort of a personal chat, I'm much more likely these days to kind of be less friendly and to shut yeah. that down and to and say you no, know, like that's not appropriate, um, and to be a bit of a you know negative Nancy in that respect. But generally speaking, I'll be like I think most crowns that work with me uh, will know that. I'll be you know, ch- shooting the shit with them in court up until the second the judge walks in. And I think that that's a good way to conduct yourself because I find crowns are much more likely to be willing to pick up the phone or send me a text or, or chat about a resolution casually and be open-minded if you have a good relationship so I just sort of I view it both as it makes your life way more pleasant to have people to talk to and to have colleagues on both sides of the bar and it also I think is actually strategically valuable for getting things done for your clients so I I kind of view it as a core competency to build those relationships uh, and to be able to leave leave forceful advocacy at the door of the courtroom Uh, and again And worst case scenario, one thing I found to be very valuable is uh, if you're really, really mad at someone and you think they're being terrible, don't tell it to their face, go home and tell your partner how terrible the person was. And cause they don't know in my world, my, my partner is not a lawyer, so I can come home and whine about the crown till the cows come home and that won't go anywhere. And it is a cathartic thing to do that doesn't have any professional consequences. Yeah. So that's like my coping mechanism in really bad cases. I'm like, Oh my God, you'll never believe that this, this person did this thing. But then I, I leave it at home and I don't take it back to work with me the next day.
1: Yeah. I mean, like mo- most cases resolve, right? So um, your your ability to kind of bring home the best resolution depends on, you know, those EQ s- skills. Because um, I, I do think that relationships can make a difference in, in resolutions. Um, you know, there's no way to measure that. But I, th- I think that is that is true. And, you know, we've, if you've spoken to civil council, the civil bar is so acrimonious in some oh parts of this country. And, um, you know, I think what what we have um, that a lot of parts of the, the bar don't have is like a, an ability to cut to it, you know, like without any bluster, you just kind of Especially when you've got two experienced counsel on a file, you can just get right to the heart of the matter and, and figure out what can be resolved and what needs to be litigated. And um, if you spend any time in any other area of, of law, it is, it is pretty unique
0: and awesome. So we're pretty lucky in that respect. Yeah, so the litigation and the way that they communicate with each other is absolutely exhausting. Whenever I dip my toe back in, I'm just like, I can't. Communicate. Like I just I want I like I can do it, but it it hurts my soul now to be like, dear sir, blah, blah, blah. So I'm very grateful for the criminal bar. Um, what else can you ask me?
1: Oh, can I ask you a question from my husband?
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Um, is there a right way to load a dishwasher?
0: <laughs> yes. I, I like, this is a point of serious debate between my partner and I, yeah. so that he is useless at loading the dishwasher. Like I'm, I'm not somebody who is about like every inch of space must be maximized at all times. I find that to be exhausting. Just get the goddamn thing loaded. But also there are things that belong on the bottom rack and there are things that belong on the top rack. No, and if you Put no, no, it just, it just drives me insane. Like he'll put a single mug in the middle of the bottom rack such that yeah. we can't put a pot down there. And I'm like, what, like, where did you learn? Like, I just, it's shocking. For a person who is, has like high spatial intelligence in the rest of his life, it, it never ceased to blow my mind. He can probably hear me right now as we're recording this, and I'm glad because he knows how I feel. Uh, like, it's, it just, just make sensible choices. If it's a small item, put it in a place that only small items can go. Now, you're so wrong about this, Lisa, <laughs> And I think, um I think that
1: we need to examine whether you've got some sort of OCD it, diagnosis it in your future. It makes sense, Danielle. No. It
0: makes sense.
1: I say you load it in willy-nilly, Ugh. jam it, jam it as much as you can, and just throw the fucker on. That is Ugh. how you load a dishwasher.
0: Ugh. Ugh. We could we never be lovers. <laughs> never, <laughs> we could never co-share a dishwasher. <laughs> mark unloads every time i load the dishwasher
1: like every night he unloads it and reloads it
0: yeah i do do that too so mark and i can be friends but you're not welcome to load my dishwasher we should have a partner swap (laughs) yeah but then you would never get any dishes washed because the two of you would just put like one mug in and press go and it would be a disaster so um (laughs) speaking of uh (laughs) speaking of your terrible decisions quad dishwashers. Uh, we have a question from Dragana Vujovic. I hope, hope I'm saying that right, Dragana. Um, her question is, is there a mistake that you've made that you'll never forget, whether it be in life or in law, law school, articling, etc. cetera. Um, talk about your biggest failures, Danielle. On the spot, go. Oh
1: my God. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think this is a common question. I've been asked this question before. Um, and, and I've been asked this question before in the context of, um, uh, women's events, which is interesting. Like, I, I wonder if it's a bit of a thing like that women want to hear from other women about kind of mistakes or failures, um, because there's this, um, there's a lot of talk about um imposter imposter syndrome and that sort of thing. So I think it kind of falls into that bucket of concerns that women have and are you know look to to work towards and um and I don't know if it says something terrible about me that I don't have a ready catalog <laughs> for yeah, you of mistakes and errors and um regrets. I just I just don't. And, um, and it may be that, I, that I'm, I'm good at kind of picking myself up and brushing myself off and not kind of retaining that stuff. Cause for sure, I make lots of mistakes and yeah. errors and I, I, and I probably should have a ton of regrets, but, um, you know, I just kind of keep on trucking. I
0: think that's great. I mean, I think that's the best. I, I do have one thing. Um, that I have done professionally that I will like, will always regret and very much steers my approach to everything now. And it's been like a hard overcorrect, which is that when I was like very much starting, I think actually as a student, like a summer student, I was behind on getting something done and I kind of misrepresented how done it was and then tried to like fix it overnight and back solve for it and ended up getting caught uh, not having done the thing that I'd said I had done. Yeah. and it was just like such looking back on it. I'm like, it's such an obvious mistake. All you have to do is say, I'm really sorry. I've gotten jammed on these things and I don't have it done. What would you like me to do? And it sucks in the moment, yeah. but it's, it's such a better plan than trying to like bullshit your way out of a corner you've, you've paved yourself into. Uh, and, and it ended up being, it ended up turning into more of a thing that it needed to be because, I took a really dumb, irresponsible, you know, approach to it instead of treating it like a professional. I mean, I was, you know, it was a summer student. I was still a a wee baby, but nevertheless uh, made a really bad decision about how to handle something in a way that I think affected a relationship. And I will, I will always regret it. And it was such a dumbass thing to do. Um, I was like pretty depressed at the time and feeling really overwhelmed. And it was just like one of those like looking back, I'm like, of course you made a dumb decision. It was like a perfect storm moment of everything going wrong in my life, but still handled it wrong. And now I like, I think I overcorrect now with just like extreme radical honesty about things in a way that is not always to my benefit. I'll I'll be like, no, no, you're not. Don't, don't apologize. It's entirely my fault. Let me catalog catalog for you the seven ways in which this is my fault. And I will take responsibility for it let me list the reasons why I've, you know, this is on me. uh, And I'll be very candid about exactly where I am with things um, in a way that, you know, is not always that level of like hyper candor is not necessarily required to be a responsible professional. But you know, I, I frankly think erring on that side of the, the ledger is better than ever over, over representing anything. And certainly you never want to be untruthful. I mean, leaving aside the whole, like, it's your professional obligation piece. It's just a really dumb way to practice law or to do anything, you know, per- personally or professionally. So as much as it is still this, like even talking about it, I have like my chest, yeah. feels constrict. I'm like, Oh God, why did you do that? But, but, you know, having done it, I think was a really important moment in realizing that like this is not school anymore. Things have real consequences. You have to be better than your worst sort of scared kid in the corner impulses to sort of pull the wool over people's eyes and try to get away with stuff. And and it was a really good like becoming a professional moment for me. And I've I've never let myself do anything dumb like that again. Uh, yeah. And and I learned a lot from that experience. So I think. You know, I, I definitely agree with you that women, I think there's this sort of attitude of, you know, we want to admit to our failings and sort of do this very honest imposter syndrome-y thing. But I also do think that there are times when we as a profession don't do a good enough job of acknowledging the fact that we constantly make mistakes. Oh my
1: God, I'm just so glad you shared that. I Because I think it's really, really, really common. And yeah. I think it's a really common... Um, so I have like two things to add on that. Okay. First, I think it's like a really common, um, anxiety response, right. To like be overwhelmed and to turtle and, and, and just like try to pretend like everything's okay and not be candid that you've, you're about to miss a deadline. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think, I think it's completely explicable. Number two, I think it is a very common thing that happens to highly successful people. And I think that if there's, you know, I think about this a lot um, in my capacity as a a mentor because I mentor so many um, really outstanding uh, lawyers who are credentialed uh, beyond belief and who have always, um, you know, gotten the scholarships and the accolades and the awards and the clerkships. And, um, and, and it is very difficult to confront your own, um, you know, failure is a good, not a great word, but your own kind of shortcomings when you've had a, a, a stellar history of like perfect success. And um, and and I think that that struggle at the beginning of practice can be really difficult for a lot of young lawyers, and um, and and it's really hard to kind of shift your focus away from yourself because when you're a student, you're you're only doing it for yourself, you know, or for your family, and um, and when you're practicing, the focus is the client, right? So, so it that sometimes can take a little while to, to figure out and to reorient and to know that if you've missed a deadline or you're about to miss a deadline, that is more consequential to the client or could be more consequential to the client. And it's not really about you. And, um, and to kind of take your ego out of it and, and work towards Uh, the benefit of the client. So I I think it's like, it's a really common problem for the, the most promising lawyers. And, uh, and I'm really, really, really glad that you shared it. I did not have this problem because I had no previous history of success in (laughs) life. And so uh, my ego never got in the way of my practice (laughs) because when I started to achieve um, an, even just the most modest uh, success in practice, it was um, just a, a wild
0: surprise to everyone, including myself. <laughs> and look at you now. No, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird, I'm sort of like, this is like a random, like totally random sort of non sequitur, but this is actually my frustration with how I think the development of ineffective assistance of counsel jurisprudence is really bad because it creates this culture where admitting to having ever made a mistake is like now suddenly this big intense professional negligence issue and you got to contact law pro and you have to yeah. go through this whole crazy process of affidavits when sometimes I feel like if there was an easier way for lawyers to be like I messed up a little bit there and we can fix it by redoing something but it's just like we have it's such a high stakes environment that we've created for ourselves in this profession and I think people just become kind of panicky about the prospect of ever making a mistake and and try to you know I don't know I just yeah. think that can, there will be a better way to approach mistakes and the law, but. Maybe that maybe, is.
1: Um, maybe everyone should just have um, my my mentor Marie Hennen visit them in their practice for a couple of days, and 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 they'll learn very quickly how to admit mistakes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is that is uh, for anyone out there. I don't know if Marie has agreed to this, but uh, <laughs> Renda Marie, um, the, the truth seeker, will come to you and make you admit your problems. <laughs>
1: It's the winner of the 2019 Walter Owen Book Prize. It has been described as an invaluable resource to the entire legal community in Canada by the chair of the Canadian Foundation for Legal Research. Expand your knowledge about Indigenous identity, best practices, courts, and Gladue reports with Indigenous People and the Criminal Justice System, a Practitioner's Handbook by Jonathan Rudin. To learn more and order your copy today, visit imonca slash indigenous. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit iman.ca slash indigenous and enter code lawyers lounge at
0: checkout. I don't know. Have we, have we answered, have we answered everything? I feel like we have been asked everything and have been as candid as I'm comfortable being on something that'll probably exist in perpetuity. Um, yeah, this,
1: <laughs> is, this is all I've got. I think, Uh, I don't think I've got anything left in the tank, but um, Lisa, you've got some news to share with uh, our listeners. It's a bit, it's a bit sad.
0: Yeah, I am uh, I am stepping away from legal practice for a brief spell. Um, I will be back, um, but I am taking a role um, outside of active practice for a period of time. Uh, so I am going to very sadly be stepping away from the podcast for the duration of this other thing that I'm doing. Um, uh, and I don't know how long it'll be. It could be a couple months. It could be a year or so. So, Um, I am really, really going to miss, uh, doing this with you, Danielle. It has, I think I was telling you this when we were talking about this privately, but, um, when we agreed to do this podcast, you know we had all these big plans of how professional it would be, and we you know we were going to come into the studio and and you know have <laughs> it all have it all be this fancy thing and uh, with my most sincere apologies to Iman, i 've actually had a lot more fun doing it during this crazy pandemic yeah as i think it 's been a really it 's been really lovely getting to talk to you it 's been really fun having this community that we get to be a part of that we can kind of you know, I mean, I know we're talking at them rather than with them, but, um, you know, I've had great dialogues on Twitter with people who have listened yeah. to the podcast and people that have emailed me and, you know, it's been such a nice sense of community over the past few months as we have been dealing with this weird garbage fire that is 2020. Yeah. Um, so I am super sad to have to step away from this for a while. Um, I know that you're going to have some Probably, you know, more glamorous and fabulous replacements for me in the short term. No, there's um, no such
1: thing. There's
0: <laughs> no I'm such thing. sure we'll have information about that coming out soon. But uh, don't don't forget me. I will be back. I am very much. I'm, I'm as we talk about, you know, women leaving defense practice. I I am like. It makes me very sad to step away for a little while, and it was a really tough choice. But uh, I will be back. Uh, back in the courts. I was in a prelim today. And it made me feel sad that I may not be in court for a while. Um, but yeah, no, a junkie like you always comes back. I mean, I I love hearing myself talk so much. There's no way I won't be back in <laughs> court as soon as possible. I'm uh, just so I'm room. just so grateful that the country got to hear um,
1: from you and got to learn from you. And I, I think of all the um, students out there who um, got to. To hear your voice and um, and learn from you and, and i just I just think that they're um, they're lucky to have had you on the podcast and you know just you're just a real solid person and um, and a real a real person and a great lawyer and um, and I, and I think that um, you're accessible uh, you're not Ally McBeal, Lisa. But I think that you're an accessible example of what this life can offer. Um, and I, and I, and I think like, I worry when we answer all these questions, it's all like doom and gloom, but, but it is just, we are just so privileged to serve our clients and be a part of the administration of justice and, uh, do this work every day. And I think the fact that you were in a prelim today and are sad that you're leaving briefly um, speaks to that. And um, I'm going to miss you on this podcast and, and everyone's been lucky to, to have you, but chief among them is me. I've been a very
0: person. Oh, thanks for saying that. And yeah, I'll be back. I'll be back soon. Sooner, you'll forget that I was even gone for a brief spell or something. Uh, but uh, no, thanks for all the kind words. And I will be excited to listen to the podcast um, while I am away. I'm not dead. I'm just moving briefly away. I feel like we're, this is my eulogy now. And I can just... <laughs> but no, um, I will be back. And I can't wait to jump back on the podcast when uh, when I can. So... Uh, yeah thanks thanks so much to everyone that's been listening to me ramble on about stuff for the past I guess nearly a year uh, and it's really been an absolute privilege to get to talk to you guys well thanks guys and I think that's it for us in 2020 Um, and we'll see you next year okay happy holidays to everyone who celebrates them the lawyers lounge is produced engineered and edited by Alex Ross of never sleeps network directed and published by Dana Hawes and marketing by Jordan Bloom My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Emond exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students.